everyone, welcome to Talking Force. Today we have a great podcast. I'm so excited to bring it to you. Um, we have a very special guest. Pat Dixon is going to join us. And again, his journey is interesting. It is unique. Um, he has a lot of great experience, both as a strength coach, but then now also in private sector, he's at the tip of the spear of some really incredible technology that I think all of you will enjoy. So without further ado, Pat, thank you so much for jumping on. Um, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Listen, I couldn't do justice if I tried to explain your journey of how you got to where you are today. Um, so I'm not even going to try. I'm, I'm going to try to let you do it. Uh, if you could just walk everybody through kind of your both um, undergraduate experience through the master's program um, and then kind of where you are now, um, just so I think people have a little bit of appreciation of the experience that you bring um, to your current position. Yeah, Tom, it's it's been a long and winding road, but I wouldn't change a bit of it. Um, so, you know, came from, you know, originally born in New Jersey, um, you know, multi-sport athlete, but also a science nerd. Um, and so was, uh, was lucky enough to get accepted to the University of Connecticut. Um, you know, went there on a, on a presidential scholarship, uh, and then proceeded not to maintain my GPA because I found out what social activities were. Um, so, you know, working a lot of part-time jobs, hustling, but also, you know, got in the weight room for the first time during, uh, my sophomore year. Um, was, was lucky enough to walk onto the track team there at the University of Connecticut. And, uh, you know, Coach Miller was the, the multis um, throws, you know, coach. So, you know, he's like, hey, I want to teach you how to throw a javelin because I was a soccer player with a 50-yard throw in. And so he's like, I want to teach you how to throw a jab. And so I, I went from this 180-pound, um, you know, runner soccer player to this 220-pound, you know, jab guy. And I was just blown away by just how when the body's given the right stimulus, it can do some really cool stuff. Um, and so, you know, I was in the weight room, um, you know, got to work with some, you know, amazing people as coaches, like Sean Wendell was there doing his grad work. He um, was my straight coach on the track team while a grad student. He's now with the Pacers. He's one of the longest tenure strength coaches in, in the NBA, I believe. Um, but, uh, but then got really involved in the weight room as a volunteer and as an intern. Um, you know, Coach Martin can't give enough credit to him, God rest his soul. Um, but he just, he really had it down. And so, you know, the staff there, you had guys like, um, you know, Chris West, um, who's still at UConn. You had Rajesh Patel, who's been at Quinnipiac for a number of years. Um, Andrea Hooty, who was at Kansas, Texas, and is now back at UConn. Tina Murray, who's a, a VP um, with uh, the Sacramento Kings. Just, you never know how good you have it until you look back and you kind of take some stock in it. And so got to be around some really amazing people. And, and I'll be very honest, right, when I started, I was, I was worse than ignorant um, just because I had been reading a, a lot of stuff on bodybuilding and, you know, Joe Weider was like the benchmark book that you could find in the library at the time. Um, and just really, really lucky. Graduated undergrad with an ex-phys degree, uh, minor in sports nutrition, um, and then w was lucky enough to get admitted to the, to the grad program there. Um, so you kind of worked under Bill Kramer, um, you know, at the time, just the lab had some tremendous people, Duncan French, Jeff Volick. Um, you know, Carl Marish was, was the head of the, the department at the time. So just some amazing people. And so got into coaching, got the grad assistant position, was coaching with, with Coach Martin, doing research over in the lab and, and really had an opportunity to see how the practical application and science really could come together in, in a really amazing time. Um, there's a lot of people that have, that have joked that that was kind of the, the Camelot version of UConn at that time. Just it was an amazing synergy, an amazing set of communication. We had head coaches in the sports that were you know, trying to listen, trying to learn. And this is, you know, 2002 to 2004 when I was in grad school there and 
and you really had just this tremendous opportunity to learn, grow, and, and collaborate. Um, from there, I, I jumped to the University of California at Berkeley. Um, I was out there for three years. When I got there, I was responsible for seven teams. So I had men's and women's cross country, men's and women's track and field, men's and women's tennis. Um, I had novice rowing and I had the varsity rowing team um, and just had a tremendous opportunity to work with some fantastic athletes. There's, there's a reason why the Pac-10 at the time and now the Pac-12 is, is known as a league of champions. I mean, Olympians walking into the weight room on a daily basis. Um, and it was really, really just an amazing time. And so but by the time I left, I had been working basketball on the women's side um, under Joanne Boyle there. And, uh, and I jumped back to the East Coast um, as the director of strength and conditioning for St. John's uh, men's and women's basketball um, and spent seven and a half years there. Tremendous time. Like you're in the Mecca. You know, it took me two years to get used to playing basketball games at Madison Square Garden. It was just just this wild place to walk onto that hardwood. Um, and then after St. John's, I, I jumped out to LMU as an assistant AD, um, working under Mike Dunlap, um, and uh, and got another master's degree. I got a I got an MBA in finance because you know my goal really was to move up the ranks in administration, and I thought that there was a real need at the administrative level for coaches that understood what it was to be in the trenches, understood what it was to you know spend long seasons away from family and on the road and and really understand that time commitment but i also wanted to polish up some skills in the boardroom and, and be able to look at a PL sheet be able to understand budget be able to understand kind of the business mechanics that happen behind athletics because i think as we can all admit you know in the last five years it's really been brought to the forefront but athletics is as much about sport and the endeavor to win and compete as it is a business model because we've got to keep the lights on and, and, you know, some of these larger schools, right? Like they are doing a ton of stuff with a lot of different staff. Um, and so that kind of brings me to the, the, the position that I'm in now, right? Um, so I'm the head of a applied sports science for a company called Momentus. Um, I've been doing a lot of consulting um, when I was at LMU with a couple of different companies and was really interested in the opportunity to bring science technology, but then the corporate space to, to build better tools because I think that's really what it is. When you get into coaching, you wanna help people, you wanna improve outcomes. Um, and I think that you know my step into this private sector and working for this company called Momentus now is really about, hey, how do we continue to build tools? How do we continue to use science, create something that's, that's unique and genuine, and then give that to an athlete to be able to help them achieve their personal best. And whether that's a, hey, I ran a 10K and lost 10 pounds, or whether you're chasing the two hour marathon record, like both of those are equally important endeavors in our mind. Uh, and I'm really excited about the opportunity to work on it. Well, certainly that, uh, that is a very interesting road. And, uh, as you're talking there, I, um, I have, I have more questions now for you than, than what I thought I was originally going to have started. And the first one, I got to go back to, uh, you mentioned Camelot, uh, anyone that knows me, uh, knows that obviously, uh, Bill Kramer is a huge mentor friend um, of mine, um, but also uh, everyone knows that I'm envious of that time because I too was an undergrad, was watching kind of that whole thing. And it was really incredible. If you look at some of the names that came out of that time period, not only the individuals, but what was created there between Coach Martin and Dr. Kramer. I, I joke, I call him Coach Kramer because uh, you know he'll coach if he has to, he gets in there. Mm -hmm. um, one, what was it like with Coach Martin? Um, I have, again, a, a unique connection with him as well, where he was actually at Yale. Many people don't know that before he came to UConn, he was uh, the director of strength and conditioning for the football team. And, and I have a picture of him from back in the day in the weight room with the Yale players, and then he would go on to UConn. So he has a special uh, spot in my heart. 
And it's one of the things that I regret is I never got to really spend time with him in person, kind of knew about him, saw him at conferences, but never really approached him. Give me your best uh, Coach Martin story and or uh, Camelot story that really made an impact on you. Um, so I'll start with Coach Martin. Um, when I got in there as an undergrad, um, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And, and Coach really ran a tight ship. He was discipline oriented. Um, and some of the things as a young man, I didn't understand. And then when I got up a little bit further in my career, I look back and I'm like, that man had it wired. Like he had it figured out. Like he covered his basics, right? He wasn't trying to over church anything. Like he just, he understood how to run a really solid program. And, and I, I look back on my memories of him and I am so grateful that he gave me time at the whiteboard. So, so if you were an undergrad intern or you were a grad student, um, one of the things that Coach Martin would do when we started talking is he would hand you a whiteboard uh, marker and he'd put you up at the whiteboard and you'd start having a conversation, right? And you'd start drawing stuff out, mapping stuff out. And, you know, physics equations would end up there. And it was just like, it was an experience. Um, so really, really blessed there. My last memory of him. Now, this is a guy that, that basically built... The, the sports performance program at UConn. My last mem- my last conversation with him was a couple months before he passed away. And uh, I'm at St. John's and I'm asking for some advice. And he's like, well, you know, Coach Dixon, if you ever need a really qualified intern, I'm available. And it just, it speaks to the humility. It speaks to how much he cared about the people that came up underneath him. Um, and just an amazing human being, right? And if, and if you got to know him, um, there was just, there was a lot for him to be able to share with you. And there was a lot to take away, um, with regards to Camelot, um, you know, I, I, I may be pretty clever now, but, but the people that I was around back then were infinitely smarter than me. And I really enjoyed just learning by osmosis. And so you'd be in these lab meetings where, you know, you'd, you'd have Dan or Barry who, who went on to teach, work for Nike, work for NASA. Um, you had Duncan French, who's now at the UFC. Um, you had, uh, you know, Dr. Jeff Volick, who is, is now at Ohio State and is one of the preeminent researchers on, um, you know, low carbohydrate, high fat, high protein diets. Um, you had Dr. Kramer. Um, you just had some amazing people um, that you would just learn by osmosis. And, and the ideas that be thrown around and the rabbit holes that you could go down were really amazing. But I think what made it most special was that it wasn't silos. It was the people that were moving iron and, and working with athletes could pull on some of the information that was happening and coming out of that lab. And on the flip side of it, you had lab personnel asking, hey, you know, could we do this? W- would this be practical with an athlete? Like, you know, is the protocol that we're thinking on this force plate um, and the Smith machine with brakes on it, like, is this practically applicable to like what happens in the weight room? And I think you know, again, that's almost two decades ago, it was this unique synergy of minds that people didn't want to protect their piece of the pie. People were just like, I want to share my pie with you. And like, will you share your pie with me? And I think that's really what's unique. And that to me is really the basis of a lot of the high performance models in the US right now. Because you look at how you have nutrition, sports psych, strength conditioning, um, sports medicine, athletic training, you know, orthopedics, 
and and academics like that's really the high performance model and and i wish more people could understand like rising tides right raise all ships and and the more you can help each other the more everybody benefits versus this well i'm going to do me thing and and i'm going to make sure that i cover my bases um that must have been wild because again as you mentioned the individuals are historic in that time frame the collaboration is one that's still, you know, kind of the gold standard and, and the amount of research that came out of that time frame. you know, basketball did okay, men and women's, you know, yeah. football leveled up a division. Um, and then not to mention the coaches. And I mean, you could go on and on um, just how that, that moment in time, you know, was so magical and that, you know, those effects, as you mentioned, you would go on to be a coach and other people that we didn't even get into, they've gone out. And so it's really interesting how you can create these, kind of learning environments that can make such an impact for decades thereafter. And as you mentioned, it's not about the wins and losses. It's the rabbit holes, it's the conversations, and it's yeah. the relationships um, that are pretty spectacular. So again, thank you for sharing that. And I think if anybody has a, a moment, take a look at what was done then and uh, try to do your version of that. I know certainly at Yale, um, we tried to have some of those sessions with the whiteboard. We tried to do that. And you know, in your own way, you know, how can you as a leader or director um, contribute to the next generation. I, that's what I always think about with Coach Martin is that uh, your friend, uh, Coach Staub, Joe Staub talked about it, that, you know, <laughs> Coach Martin would be in there scrubbing the floor. He'd be scrubbing the bars. He would come in early. Um, there was nothing above him. And I remember taking that to heart. And so getting in there with my staff and my interns to show that every detail matters. So um, certainly the effects of Camelot still reign true today. But now let's take that and, and walk me through kind of, so you mentioned you're now at this company. And, you know, you're saying all the right things. You want to build stuff that helps athletes. Who doesn't? Um, but you've also come out of the, you know, nonprofit, call it academia sector, to now you need to make money. Mm -hmm. Walk me through what gets you excited. And, and again, full disclosure, I, I'm pretty skeptical about supplements. I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, most of it's just expensive pee. It just mm -hmm. it don't work. Uh, there's not yeah. a lot of regulation. And so whenever we look at these things, um, I'm interested in hearing, you know, firsthand, you know, what are the athletes or what are the individual users saying that's not placebo because they'll tell you anything. Um, but then mm -hmm. also I know anything that you're going to put your name on is going to be rooted in some science. Um, and certainly it will be iterative and you'll try to make the products better. But walk me through kind of, you know, what you're excited about now. I think, you know, the only thing that could get me to step away from working with athletes was a commitment to the science. And so, you know, when I met with the two co-founders, so Jeff Byers, one of my best friends, um, and, and Erica Good, another really, really good friend, right? Their, their penchant, their mission was, we are going to invest in research. And my next question was, well, is that white papers or is that real research? And it's like, no, that's third party university research. Um, and so that's really what, what gets me bubbling because, you know, when, when it's not just me and 10 buddies in a backyard mixing some stuff up in a bathtub, right? Like it becomes real science and real measurables and, and publishable and really interesting stuff. And so, you know, the, the first product we brought to market, and this was 2017-ish, was or is called PR Lotion, right? And we had some really good data to start off with. Um, and so what what is, PR Lotion. And what is that just for people that don't know? So PR lotion is actually a lotion that, that can get sodium bicarbonate through the skin. So we can do electrolyte uh, delivery transdermally. 
Um, and we had some really great, really good data to start off with. Um, Mark Kern down at San Diego State did some early research um, and showed some really, really interesting stuff around DOMS, um, some really interesting stuff around recovery. Um, but we didn't have like that robust knockdown drag out, like here's the stamp type of thing. Um, but we continued to work on the project, right? And we continued to, to collect anecdotal evidence um, and, and we reached out to the military and we started to collaborate with them. And lo and behold, you know, we're, we're getting ready to publish two major papers. The first one is out of the University of Oregon. Um, and it's gonna show that using PR lotion can actually increase the pH in, in the quad muscle by 28% in less than 30 minutes. And so anybody listening to this podcast like has probably heard of the term lactic acid and, and knows that pH can be a rate limiting effect when it comes to performance. Um, and so that's really interesting. And the second study is actually out of the Corey Stringer Institute out of Yukon, um, but they're gonna show that the body actually retains about a half a percent of body weight in 90 degree heat over a five hour period. Um, and the reason that is really important is because the sodium component of the sodium bicarbonate is actually helping your body retain water. And that kind of alludes to some of the anecdotal stuff that we've gotten back around um, cramping um, and around muscle function, right? So these are going to be third-party research. It was sponsored and paid for by the military, um, but it's really interesting, right? And so when you work for a company that's committed to doing greater research, to having other people pressure test your ideas, um, that's really what gets me excited in the morning because it's not my opinion, it's real research. And I think that's, you know, you, you talked about supplements a little bit, but like that's the challenge in the supplement industry um, you know, it's, it's what, what is the real research behind it? And so to take it one step further, right with PR lotion, it's not a supplement facts label. It's actually a drug facts label. And so we made sure that we went through the regulatory with the FDA to get cleared. And so what's on the, on the label is truly what's in the bottle. And so that gets me excited because I have leadership that are that committed to doing things the right way. And just how does that work? So again, let, again, we'll just kind of look at this from like a, a novice standpoint. I take mm -hmm. a cream, I put it on my skin. How does it go from skin to then crossing through the different layers? And then now, you know, as you guys are talking about that, it can cross actually into the muscle. How does that work? How does that whole process work? Because then, you know, why wouldn't there be other deliveries that you would do transdermally? I mean, a lot of stuff that has to get into the bloodstream, that's different than getting into the muscle bellies or into the function. And then my other question is, why wouldn't you just take a pill for that? Because when we think of cramping, that could be systemic. Why, why choose the, the cream path? And then what are the implications for that? Because obviously there must've been a reason for that. It's a great question. Um, so sodium bicarbonate is actually one of uh, five ergogenic aids that the IOC has a position statement on saying that it works. The issue with taking sodium bicarbonate orally is the, the gut distress that can come along with it. And so if anybody's ever done that, that whole volcano reaction in the kitchen with some baking soda and some vinegar, that's effectively what happens in your stomach when you take it orally. So it's a massive release of carbon dioxide. And so that leads to burps, it leads to bloating, it leads to some other unpleasantness. Um, and so by going transdermally, we actually get around all of that and we're able to get the sodium bicarbonate into the body. Um, the real high level science on the delivery mechanism is it's a lipid micelle. And so if you think of your skin as a brick wall, uh, starting at the top, the bricks are the cells, and then the mortar between them holding them together are fats and proteins. 
And so what we're able to do is we're able to encapsulate that sodium bicarbonate in a lipid micelle that allows it to penetrate through the skin without compromising the structure or function of the layers of skin. And so the benefit there is you get delivery localized, which is great. You get delivery that then goes into the bloodstream, which is great. Um, and then the result is better performance, right? So, you know, in the long term, you're going to end up in a position where um, you can run a little bit further, run a little bit faster, maintain that speed, maintain that power output. Um, and we've actually shown a 53% decrease in DOMS at 48 hours post-workout. What are the implications for that as far as from a training standpoint or competition standpoint? And then the other thing as a coach, uh, as my wheels get spinning here, how does that interplay with beta alanine? Because I know for when we would look at beta alanine or the, specifically that carnison uh, patented uh, form, mm -hmm. you can't not notice on a conditioning. You have to have a conditioning test for one and it's just not fair if you, you, you take the other one. And so mm -hmm. looking at how that force production goes down, as you mentioned, in the presence of the hydrogen ions and all that kind of stuff, is the idea that you would stack the two together or is it more on the cardio side? Cause you could also run the circuit and recover back faster. So walk me through, is this more of a cardio thing or do you, do you foresee it being a, a weightlifting thing? So um, you brought up beta alanine. So to address that first, beta alanine is a, is a protein buffer whereas the sodium bicarbonate is an electrolyte buffer. Right? But what so, if you used both? <laughs> uh, thumbs up. <laughs> right. So, so to go back to the IOC statement, right in 2018, the IOC said five things are really great ergogenic aids. I'll guarantee everybody here knows the first three, right? It's caffeine, creatine, and nitrate. So I'll guarantee everybody's talking about those, but the last two are actually beta alanine and sodium bicarbonate. Um, the challenge with beta alanine is that you got to take it for three to four weeks consistently to get to like a meaningful level in the body. And that's coming from the research. Um, the, the sodium bicarbonate works the day of, but again, taken orally, you get the bubble gut. And so that's where PR lotion comes in. It works the day that you use it for the workout that you use it for. Um, I think there's there's some really interesting long-term research out there. Um, Wang et al. put out a paper like mid 2015-ish, 2016, don't quote me on the date, but they looked at six weeks worth of, worth of high intensity training. Um, and what they found was, is that the control group got roughly seven or 8% better and then top at the three week mark and then roughly 10% better at the six week mark. Um, but they found that the sodium bicarbonate group got roughly 10% better at the six week or at the three week mark, but was 20% better at the six week mark. And, and I think really where sodium bicarbonate comes in and, and specifically PR lotion is stacking good days together. Right. We, we've had a lot of conversations around, well, does it impede um, inflammation? Does it take away from the adaptation phase? Um, and I think, you know, Wang's paper did a really good job of kind of showing, hey, chronic use over six weeks. This is what we're going to get. Um, but it really comes down to what what do we really need in order to become better as an athlete? And it's about consistency and it's about being able to stack good days. Right. And, and if you've ever talked to a distance runner or a power lifter, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll both tell you roughly the same thing about their training. It's I've got to be able to get to the gym and I've just got to be able to get an inch better. I've got to be able to get a half a kilo more on the bar. I've got to be able to run my splits just a little bit faster. I'm not shooting for a home run, but if I can hit singles every single day for a year, I know that I'm going to get better and I know that I'm going to be able to PR. Um, and I think that's really what makes the, the lotion such an interesting concept because 
it allows you to keep doing those things. It's not a magic bullet. It's if, if you're eating poorly and you're not getting enough sleep, I got nothing for you. Sorry. But, but as we start talking about supplementation, if you can get a half a percent better here, you know, 1% more out of your body here and a half a percent better on your recovery, those things really start to add up. And whether you're somebody who is trying to lose 25 pounds worth of COVID weight, or you're somebody who's trying to chase the Super Bowl, like those wins are equally important because that person getting up off the couch trying to lose that weight is going to get sore. And when that soreness and that fatigue starts to set in, all of a sudden they take a day off because they're not feeling good. And we know, Tom, you know, you know, from your experience, it's all about habit forming. It's about routine. It's about not deviating from the plan and being able to stay with it. Um, so, yeah. And I, and I think that consistency is one of the most overlooked aspects of human performance. Everyone says good days or bad days. And I would go so far as telling people to say, I don't want to hear a good day or bad day. You're here, you're getting after it. And you either gave maximum effort uh, and attention to detail or you didn't. And, and sometimes we don't get the output that we want. Uh, we don't want it. We can't control every victory, but if we approach our craft day by day, and as you mentioned, a little bit better, a little bit better, most people tap out, most people skip days. So if you can just kind of own the process, you can be pretty successful. And as you're saying these things, you know, I, I obviously, as a strength coach, I go, wow. So uh, metabolic circuit, you know, we should probably do a podcast at some point about the, the metabolic circuit. Cause again, that lives Love in folklore. Um, so you can use it before. Um, now, any issues where, you know, I think about um, when we take these governors off. So if that's what this sounds like, if I use wrist straps, I can lift more. But now my back is exposed. Um, if I don't hydrate, um, you know, I will have issues and I'll slow down. But if I if I take this stuff and I'm hydrated, is there a worry that you're going to go past what you should from a dosing intensity and or uh, training density in a given block? Does that make sense? Is, is there any concern? It, it, it does. It makes a ton of sense, right? So if you were to use caffeine, right, are you doing more than your body really should be doing? Um, my personal philosophy is that 100% is 100%. Anybody who does 110% is asking to get hurt. Um, and so when it comes to this product, right, sodium bicarbonate is naturally produced in the body. And what your body doesn't use or doesn't metabolize, it naturally urinates out. And so this isn't a stimulant. So it's not going to cause a greater muscle contraction. Um, it's not a, a blunting agent. So we're not blocking the feedback that we're getting from our body. It's simply facilitating more optimal muscle function, more optimal uh, training capability. So in the same way that you wouldn't be worried about an electrolyte beverage, putting you in a situation where you are going to get hurt. This is really the same thing because because at its simplest form, sodium bicarbonate is another electrolyte. And what about in post? So thinking sports medicine, rehab, um, some of the rehabs can be pretty brutal. So say I'm working on an ACL and, you know, I'm working on some eccentrics or if I have a start of camp, preseason camp, and I have that first year athlete that has never experienced so much training density in a given mm -hmm. period. Um, is this something that you could see in training rooms where there'd be a tub and this is rubbed in afterwards to aid, or is it too late in kind of a rehab best, post setting? Best application is always going to be before, um, right? Again, it's this proactive versus reactive. Like, so when we're working with our professional athletes, and so for context, we work with 75% of the power five universities. Um, and we work with roughly 80% of professional sport across football. So NFL, NBA, um, 
Major League Baseball and NHL, we're working with roughly 80% of those teams. Um, and so it's really about like, hey, getting ahead of the curve. I expect to be sore from this training session today. I'm going to use it before. But on the flip side, like, you know, Reggie over with the LA Rams was kind enough to write kind of like a review on like, hey, how he'd been using it. He uses it as a massage medium. So when athletes are coming in on, on an off day, getting massages, like that's what they use for a massage medium. And his thought process is on it. Like, Hey, we're getting a mechanical and a chemical flush. Like this is awesome. Um, Very cool. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot you can do with that. Um, and it's nice when you can see stuff that it sounds like in the trenches, it's matching up with what the, the research uh, said should happen. So that's, that's obviously pretty neat. Any other uh, products, again, that you, you, you're fired up about or excited about? So on February 2nd, we're going to launch a collagen shot. And I'm really excited about that for a couple of reasons. Um, Does that so come with a Botox? Or what are we talking about collagen? Is this like <laughs> lip filling? So, come on. Yeah, right? So, so, uh, so Vital Proteins has done an amazing job of making it about hair, skin, and nails. But what people don't understand is that it's, it's, it's a vital component to all of your soft tissue and actually has implications with bone density. So if you want to do some reading, look up a guy by the name of Dr. Keith Barr, B-A-A-R. He's at UC Davis. He's done some groundbreaking research on collagen supplementation on a daily basis and its effect on power production, its effect on uh, tendinopathy, um, and its effect on soft tissue density and strength. And basically what he's found is that taking a collagen uh, supplement 30 to 60 minutes before you train can actually increase collagen synthesis by up to 200%, right? And so everybody here that's thinking about like, hey, how many soft tissue injuries do your athletes deal with on a daily basis? If you're sports med, what do you see over the course of a year? Like, again, we gotta get ahead of the curve. And so the, the challenge around collagen, right, is it typically comes in a powdered form. Sometimes it doesn't taste too hot. Uh, it can be goopy, gloppy, like it should be mixed in a blender. Um, and then there's challenges around like, hey, personnel, time, effort, um, the logistics behind it. And so developing this collagen gel shot, it's actually 10 grams of collagen with 35 grams of, or 35 milligrams, pardon me, of vitamin C, which is a cofactor to collagen synthesis in a, in a little gel shot. It's roughly three quarters of an ounce of fluid, and you can just take it before you go train. Throw a couple in your bag, that way you've got access to them. Because again, it's about a scientific solution that actually helps a practitioner execute their job better. Um, if I had known a decade ago when I was working with college basketball players, like, hey, this was something that was going to be this important, I would have had everybody taking it. Um, and I really do believe that in the next couple of years, we're going to start taking a step back and saying, hey, like standard of care, quality of care, like this is something that's, that's part of the conversation in the same way that in the mid-2000s, a post-workout recovery shake with protein in it became the benchmark. And if you weren't doing it, something was wrong. Um, and in the same way that we talk about hydration and we make sure that we have, you know, sodium, potassium, some zinc, some magnesium in it, like this is our electrolyte beverage because when we're training, sweating, working out, like it's important. Do you think we would see that on the plates? Cause I know there was a bunch of research during UConn time on the elasticity, the soft tissue stuff that doc always talks about. I wonder if that's something that we would see either in you know, the depth of the counter movement, or if we saw that in the stiffness, or even if we did any of the repeated jumping, do you think it's that dramatic that we would actually see biomechanical stuff? So any of our customers that have plates and again, pretty lofty claims. And if you want to be skeptical, it's always great to try yourself. Do you think that's something that you would see, or do you think it's a little bit more subtle? Uh, I think it's something that'll actually show up. So Keith's work, he showed in a three week period 
that daily collagen uh, supplementation can actually mitigate the decrease in rate of force production during the hypertrophy phase. Like he's already done the work, right? So, so again, Keith Barr, B-A-A-R, um, he, he published a paper about six weeks ago. Um, his group was football, rugby, and small OTC members. And basically going through a heavy training phase, right? We would all expect that force production goes up because we're getting stronger, but sometimes that rate of force production can go down, right? Because the soft tissue isn't keeping up with the muscle um, and its development. And so what he found was 20 grams of collagen per day actually maintain rate of force production. For practical application, imagine you're a football strength coach working with a football team and you know you're going through a hypertrophy phase, but you also know that you're going to be doing sprints, agilities, and you're trying to get more powerful. You're trying to work on your broad jump, i.e. spring training. Right. If I could give you something that costs like starts at a dollar sixty-eight a serving, and it didn't take a blender, and all you had to do is give it to guys before they came to the weight room, like low lift, super low lift. Now, do you think that's more along the lines of how we think about um, branch chain amino acids leucine to the mTOR pathway as a protectorant, so the collagen is protecting the duress, or is it aiding the remodeling? Because as you mentioned, muscle grows at a rate. The tendons and ligaments grow at a different rate. Bones, obviously, much slower rate. Do you think it is an aid to keep up, or do you think it's acting as a protectorant? Uh, I'm not sure on the protectorant, but I really believe it has something to do with helping both the amount and strength of that collagen synthesis, right? And so when we're in heavy training cycles, we're so focused on like, hey, make sure you get your 25 grams away. Hey, make sure you're getting some carbohydrate in. But we're not thinking about when we're taking that supplement. So even if you were to argue that, hey, amino acids are important, how many people are taking a collagen profile amino acid 30 to 60 minutes before they train? And I would argue probably not many, if any, right? We're always, oh, here's your shake after the workout, right? Like, well, my guys will be, my, my guys and gals will leave the weight room. Like they go hit the fridge on the way out and grab a shake, right? We've got to start thinking about timing and about how we can best affect change and stay ahead of the curve, right? Like we do dynamic warmups now, we hydrate now because we realize like, hey, like we don't wanna pull muscles. Like there, there's something to be said for warmup. It's a given now. I, I really believe that some of this nutritional intervention is gonna become a given. Let's call it three or four years from now. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that because as you mentioned 20 years ago, it was a novel concept that you would break down muscle proteins and, and you would need to give extra. I think vitamin D probably has fallen along those lines as well, is that you live in the Northeast, you're probably deficient, but then yet you're going to ask the body for these, you know, supra homeostatic level performances, you would need to aid and augment um, just to keep up. So with that remodeling process. So I think that's, that's super, super interesting. When, when we talk about combining these, you know, again, some people ask, you know, what's that line of helping, hurting, uh, cheating. I, I know one of the classes we took where uh, one of the professors, you know, brought up this ethical question. And it's like, well, what if one team has Gatorade, one doesn't? Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a cleared substance, like you said, as far as the IOC and things like that. Do you foresee this being one of those things where the teams that do it are going to be very clearly at an advantage in what they're able to do from a training load standpoint? that you're going to be at a disadvantage or do you still think that it's, there's not enough research yet to determine? Because if it is a 
protein, a creatine um, class, you know, aid, those are things that if a coach is looking for an advantage and it's healthy and safe for the athletes, why wouldn't you do it? You know what I mean? Sure. Um, all of those questions are, are really important. I think first off as a company, we are always food first, always, right? Like you've got to clean up your diet. You can't out train a bad diet. You can't out supplement a bad diet. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is sleep, right? Is super important. Um, but I think as we start to look at ergogenic aids, right, whether it's, you know, the first guy that wore cleats on a track or a better bat or, you know, the laser suits that came out, you know, in the Olympics mid 2000s or, you know, any of the compression garments that are really helping kind of some of that, that muscle and sinew function to give support. Um, I, I think we're always evolving. Um, I would like to believe that like we're just getting better with nutrition and, and a better understanding of what some of those smaller things are. Um, you know, I had a discussion two days ago about bone broth, right? Do you ever remember your grandmother like boiling a chicken carcass to make chicken soup? Yes. Right. Like, so as our dietary patterns change, right? Like some of these things that we used to take for granted that were in our diets on a daily basis aren't anymore. You, you brought up vitamin D, right? We used to not have an issue with vitamin D because everybody was drinking whole milk. Everybody's eating, you know, a ton of grain cereal in the morning, whether it be, you know, Kellogg's, you know, CW Post, whatever that might be, um, and and eating breads. But as diets have shifted, right, to almond milk or to oat milk or, or to any of these other variants, right, it starts to change the amount of vitamin D that we're getting in our diet. Um, and so I think that it's not a cheat. I think it's it's simply getting better. For me personally, I, I define... Um, Anytime you are changing a hormone uh, in the body, I think that's kind of a very, very fine line. Um, so to, to me, that would kind of be where supplementation goes, right? So, you know, late late 90s, right? Everybody's talking about Andro because you can go get it at GNC for Christ's sake. Um, I, I think that's cheating. Um, but I think when we're getting smarter about how we're delivering, you know, a protein, right? Because it's, it's bovine collagen. Um, how we're getting smarter about electrolyte delivery. I don't see those as cheap. Yeah, I know when we think about why did we get to be coaches? What what was our moment? You mentioned you had your iron bug moment when you got to UConn and, and kind of got excited. I think we owe it to our athletes as coaches and practitioners to try to be at the tip of the spear and look for something that's better. You know, you could go and eat a giant meal before lifting. You could, and you might throw it all up. Because again, with your with your stomach being full, so we have shakes, and we, so we use these mediums and tools. And it sounds like you guys are trying to go in the direction of taking this electrolyte, which ideally or normally would be um, consumed via beverage. That now that there's just a new way, and I don't think many people think about doing electrolytes transdermally. So certainly um, an interesting thought. With that being said, you get a chance to interact with a lot of coaches in the landscape. You, you've you've come through the Camelot time, I think in the last five years has been a ton of change in the industry and let's even go 10, 20 for better or worse. What are some of the things that you're seeing industry wide or things that people are doing well and kind of the state of the game um, from someone who's kind of seen it now for, for quite a while? Um, I think the biggest thing that, that frustrates me is the, the disconnect between admin and people executing in the trenches. Um, and what I mean by that, right, is it's very rare 
that you get, you know, administrative like senior associate ADs or the AD that, that come down to the weight room or come down to the athletic training room and are there at 5.30 in the morning to watch, you know, like pre-workout prep, right? To, to get an idea of what that's like to, you know, when, when you're a strength coach or you're an athletic trainer and you know practice starts at six, that means everybody better be ready to go by 5.45 and warming up. And that means everybody's in the building by 5.15, which means that as support staff, we're probably in the building at like 4.45, right? And, and we do it because we love it, um, but there has to be some give and take. And I think understanding um, how much goes into to these athletes. And I, I spent a lot of time raising other people's kids, right? A lot of being a coach is about being a mentor. It's about, you know, how do you teach somebody to make the right decisions, give them a safe space to have conversations in um, so that they can grow and evolve. And it's, it's more than sport, right? It's the, the goal of, and again, personal opinion, the goal of any strength coach or, or nutritionist or athletic trainer or coach should be to make a better human being, right? A better son or daughter, a better boyfriend or girlfriend, a better, just a better person, right? Give them the opportunity to take a step back and, and be a little bit, uh, more open-minded. So I think, you know, frustration with the industry um, is just an understanding at the top of the food chain in an athletic department, what's happening at the bottom and how hard some of those people are working. Um, because, you know, money is a thing, right? Like everybody's trying to run budgets. But when an opening position on one coast at a university is 35000 and an opening position on another coast is 62000 like you have a problem with your industry. Like you have a, a major challenge there. And, and so strength coaches get hammered a lot. Oh, they need to be certified. Oh, they need to have a master's degree, you know, but you're going to start somebody at 35 grand, with no benefits. Like that's crazy. Like Brett Bartholomew says it the best, right? He's like in no other industry on the planet, do they ask people to work for free to do a job? Nobody else. But how many times do you see unpaid internships? Right. Like, you know, so I, I think there has to be some type of come together in the space. Um, I really wish that the NSCA and the CSCCA would get together. Um, I think it'd be really cool to see uh, if strength coaches unionized. Um, and I think that um, some of the, the more successful strength coaches owe it to the up and comers to be a little bit more transparent about their journey. Um, and about what they're making, right? Because you've got some of the guys tops in football are making a million bucks a year, right? But then their lowest assistant on staff is taking home 35. Do you think that is a problem or do you think it's an evolution of where we're at? I'm always reminded, if you think about the first surgeon, go whoever was the first person to put a scalpel mm -hmm. to a, a patient and then quote unquote, heal them um, through medicine, that person's long gone. Like our founder, the first guy, we had him on here for the podcast with Boyd, the first mm -hmm. guy to ever get paid to add some sort of stimulus to try to get the guys back faster is still alive. So is it really a problem or do you think we're in a time of transition where, you know, you like you said, financially, it's got to be there. But also, you know, you get you got to be good at what you do. Like you can't be a steakhead. Like tell me how you're not 5'10", you know, 180 pounds, former athlete that love the weight room. And now you don't want to grow up because a lot of people love the weight room. So what is your strength? And whether it's internship mentorship, or as we shift to more of an apprenticeship, 
because we know you can have every letter after your name. But at Yale, we figured out it was about 500 to 800 hours of floor time to make you less likely to kill somebody. It doesn't mean you're good, but you still have to get that time in. And whether it's an apprenticeship or whether it's an internship where maybe you're not paid, but you're, you're getting credit or whatever your clinical hours are, do you think it's a problem or do you think it's an evolution of just where we're at in the state of the game? You know, I think when you get into it, I, I, you know, did an internship, right? Didn't get paid, right? I did a GA position where, you know, my master's degree was covered and I had some living expenses covered. Um, I think there's a reasonable balance, right? Because there has to be some type of hunger coming from the applicant um, to really want to hone that craft, right? Like you've got to earn the right to be there. You don't want to be just another jersey chaser. You don't want to be another one of the, the groupies that's just happy to be on the field throwing a ball around with a football player, right? Like you have to have a passion for the craft. But I also think that on the flip side of it, when you when you get to a full-time position, I think there kind of has to be some benchmark expectations, right? Because you're expected to be first aid um, CPR certified. You're expected to have a master's degree. You're expected to have one, if not more, national certifications, right? And so with that expectation should also come an expectation of like, hey, here's the base level to make, right? I think that the challenge with our community is that there are so many people that want to get into it. It's easy just to, to lowball on salary. It's easy to lowball on price, but you get what you pay for. And that's not a knock against the, the, the guy coming in who took the job and was willing to take it, right? There's expertise, there's experience. Um, strength coach positions used to be like 10 months long, right? Or 11 months long, right? And, and the challenge around that, right, is that now a strength coach's position is year round, right? When I was working basketball, I spent more time with my athletes on a day in day out basis than my assistant head coaches did. And again, not knocking it, but, but we can't say that, um, you know, basketball coaches salaries are starting at $115,000 a year, but the strength coach is making like 50 or 55 and you're expecting him to work an 80 hour a week and basically be non-existent for five months out of the year. And again, not complaining, right? But I think that, that as, a, as a profession, if some of the, the senior leadership at, at both of those uh, certifications and some of the heads of state, so let's call them you know, directors of sports performance on the Olympic side and the head football guy from 150 schools, if we all got together and said, hey, how are we going to make our community better? And how are we going to structure it so that there is um, more control? And I don't mean control holding people back. I mean, more like, hey, these are the base standards. So a strength coach is a strength coach is a strength coach. So that you understand, like, when you have, you know, this type of certification, you have a benchmark, you know, amount of, of education, right? One of the things that I loved about the CSCCA is they had that whole internship program or the mentorship program that you had to go through in order to get certified, right? And then, and then they were failing people from their certification, right? Like, sorry, you didn't pass the practical. Like, that to me is a good sign. But if everybody takes the exam and everybody passes, that's not necessarily a good sign. Right. And I hope, too, um, you mentioned the, the sport coaches. Sport coaches have wins and losses. They have, like, recruiting. So some guys aren't great X's and O's, but incredible mm -hmm. recruiters. I hope that our industry gets to the point of where there's known standards or, uh, as you mentioned, benchmarks, that there's a certain expectation. Like, I don't want to walk into a department with a guy with a master's and every certification and see a whiteboard. You know, I want to see six months of training logs. I want to know that I will give you 
person A, and there's a certain expectation because until there's wins and losses, uh, and not even wins and losses in the sense of the game, but something that someone, an administrator or a coach can look at and say, yeah, I'm going to hire this individual because there's an expected outcome. Nobody hires a coach and say, well, I hope we win. Like you're going to get a contract. It's three to five years and you win a yeah. conference or there's certain expectations, but strength and conditioning can get really gray really quickly. And sometimes the guys who do nothing, but have great relationships and they're available all the time. One of my buddies said, it's not about your ability. It's about your availability. So are you willing not to see your wife? Are you willing to, Joe will say, you know, have no friends, but get a dog. Um, mm -hmm. You know, is that the marker? And and for sports, how important is high performance versus let's exercise, you know, throw some weights around, don't get hurt. What do you think that looks like if you had a magic wand, if you were the emperor of gains and you had to pick a financial benchmark uh, or, or industry standard benchmark, what would they be? Um, I think the, the two things that I would look at, again, magic wand here, would be uh, non-contact injury rate and increases in athleticism, right? And so whatever those specific measures are, right? Let's call it anaerobic and aerobic capacity. Let's call it agility. Let's call it um, lower body strength, upper body strength, um, and total body power, right? Like you can pick whatever measurable you want to have in there. Um, but I think the key, right, is, is like, are we making athletes better? Are we making them more functional? And then that second piece that I mentioned was around injury right? Like non-contact injuries. Like in some sports, there's nothing you can do about a contact injury, right? Like in the sport of football, if, if somebody gets hit and they get hurt, there's nothing I can do about that. But there is something that I can do when it comes to like, hey, this guy cut and his knee failed him, fell out from underneath him, right? Like there are things that can be done in there. Um, and I think that if we, if we had some baseline measurables that everybody was like, you know, hey, you know, that this is what you have to go to, it, it becomes bedrock that you can push it off from. Because I think the one of the hardest parts about our profession is that if you never measure, you don't know if you're getting better or not. Right. And, and so there are some coaches out there that don't really test and they'll give you a philosophical argument. Right. I'm not but a number argument, chaser. I'm not a number. Right? I'm, not a, I'm not a numbers guy. Right. But, but my argument would be, well, then how do you know your program is working? Right. Because I'll tell you right now, like if, if you put any strength coach with a top 25 football team, like your goal is not to break them because you're already getting ridiculous freak athletes. Right. We call them mutants. Right. Like jump out of the gym, lift ridiculous weight, you know, power to weight ratio of like three or four to one. You know, like we've all been around some of those athletes. Right. So so I think that if you actually have a measurable, if you actually have something to push off and, and that's quantifiable. It's objective, not subjective, right? It starts to improve some accountability, right? Because you know, you were you were in banking in a previous life. Like numbers are numbers. Like they don't lie. Like either you manage your portfolio properly or you didn't. That's it. Yeah. My my thing is, yeah, numbers chaser. I get that argument. To say it's a vertical jump, a bench press or whatever. But typically yeah. if you pick four or five things that we all kind of agree that like, I don't need you to be strong, I need you not to be weak. Um the freshmen should come in, however talented they are. They should not be producing more power than your juniors or seniors. So in general, it should be a trend line. And I'll let you pick the four or five things. Let's make it quote unquote sport specific, strength, sure. speed, power, repeat, or whatever. But in general, I want to see trend lines that are trending up. 
So that way you're going to get the kid who just shouldn't have been recruited. You're going to get the kid that could literally do a bicep curl and the vert's going to go up six inches. But I want to collectively see in general, when I give you a body of athletes, are they trending up? And I think they should be rewarded for that. Because again, if they're doing that and they're developing them on a mutually, you know, agreed upon set of metrics, there's value there. As you mentioned, even just on injuries. I know, again, mentioning Joe's comment on if you stop an ACL, if you stop three ACLs, those ACLs cost money. Okay, what's the cost of that? Can we redirect 30, 40% of that back into a position because we'd rather buy staff than, you know, pay for graphs. So really interesting. And I hope that as people are listening to this, you start thinking about solutions because right now there's a lot of complaining. People are, we don't get paid enough. Okay, great. How, how could you go about, you know, doing, you know, doing more and then getting it recognized so that we can get paid more. And I, and I do hope that, especially with some of the stuff that's going on at the higher levels, as you mentioned, some of the leaders in our field really step up, have those conversations, those admins, because more than ever, this pandemic has showed us, you know, training year round is not only good physiologically, but it certainly helps with the relationships and the psychological component, you know, of the stresses that the modern athlete faces. So, and I think, you know, again, the responsibility is on both sides, right? The responsibility is to administration to recognize great staff and to recognize the value that they bring to the table. Um, but as, as strength coaches, like we also have to step up. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a weight room to go visit and a guy's like walking around with his shoes untied or in slippers with a hat on backwards. It's like, are you an athlete or a coach? Right. Cause I'm telling you right now, like I was, a, I was an assistant AD and like if when I walked into the room, I had a collared shirt on and I was ready to coach. And the vice president or president of the university could walk into my weight room and they would know exactly who was the leader of the group and exactly who the athletes were. Um, and I understand, right? Like social, trying to create common ground, trying to create relationships and all that, right? But but if we don't take ourselves seriously as strength coaches, how can you ask the president of the university who oversees all budgets to take you seriously, right? Pat Ivey, right? He says, whenever I go to a conference, address appropriately, right? How many times have you gone to a conference, right? Where somebody like could potentially be like interviewing or meeting somebody that's going to hire them one day. And they're in like cargo shorts, flip-flops, with a backpack on, like with a dip in their mouth. Again, not knocking it, not judging, right? But, but saying that you can't, if, if that is your attitude towards your profession, then you can't turn around and expect somebody to pay you $100,000 they just don't go hand in hand. Um, so I've done preaching. <laughs> well, well said. <laughs> well, listen, hey, um, this has been awesome. I know there's going to be a bunch of questions. We will definitely, if you can uh, log on, take a look at our notes. We'll we'll link that paper that we talked about earlier today um, so you can read the research yourself. But if individuals or anybody wants to reach out either for their team or maybe just for themselves, I know a lot of coaches will want to try some of this stuff um, personally. What's the best way for them to get a hold of you um, and, and connect? Just shoot me an email. Super simple. Patrick at livemomentous.com. Um, shoot me an email, let me, you know, in the, in the title or in the subject line, just put the podcast. Um, and I'll make sure that I get to, I will make sure. Awesome. Well, we could talk for hours and we'll have to get you back on here, but thank you so much. And again, I love these where, you know, I'm already thinking about how to integrate some of the creams into the, the training plans and recovery plans. I'm going to think about that. Um, and as well as some of the stuff that you bring up that great point about the industry. So um, certainly thought provoking. And again, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much.
Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it.